Well, good evening, everybody. Well, uh, my name's Nicholas Barr, and I've been teaching economics here for about a million years. Uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome you all to the third event of the In Conversation series of events, uh, which forms part of the celebrations to mark the completion of the Source Weehock Student Centre. Uh, I'm told this is the first new building on campus for more than 40 years. I can remember the last new building. <laughs> it's a dump. <laughs> this knocks spots off it. Uh, we thought that a series of events with some of our alumni would be a great way to open the new building. And uh, I hope that many of you will be able to come to other events in the series. The next is... Is the feedback between you and me? I, I'm not sure. I apologise for the feedback. I don't know if there's anything that can be done about that. Um, the next in the series of events is the 20th of March with Daniel Finkelstein, who's associate editor of The Times, and he'll be in conversation with the Student Union General Secretary, Jay Stoll. The C. Sorswehox Student Centre is already transforming the student experience at LSE. We think it's the, the best student centre in the UK. Um, it's not just a new home for the Students' Union. It's got state-of-the-art facilities um, uh, for a whole range of students' activities. I mean, you've only got to stand in the lobby and see what's on each of the floors. Um, so LSE Careers, the LSE Faith Centre, LSE Residential Services, uh, uh, a dancing and movement area. So I'd like to take the opportunity to thank the donors who contributed to the building, including a gift from the classes of 1990 to 94, of which Martin is an, an alumnus, which supported a student union meeting room. And, of course, special thanks to Professor Saul Sweehock, after whom the building is named. It's a huge pleasure tonight to welcome Martin Lewis. We've, we've known each other since his student days. He spent a year as General Secretary of the Students' Union, graduated from LSE with a degree in government. Uh, Martin, known as Money Savings Expert, as you know, is an award-winning campaigning TV and radio presenter, newspaper columnist, author. I mean, just keeping up with what he does makes me feel exhausted. He's got his own evening ITV programme, The Martin Lewis Money Show, uh, is resident on this morning, Daybreak and Radio 5 Live's consumer panel. For the students amongst you who were getting up at lunchtime today, if you listened to Radio 5, you'd have heard Martin talking about cash ices. Or if you got up earlier, as on Daybreak much beforehand for the grown-ups. Um, He's the most Googled man in Britain and apparently the person whom more people would like to see as Chancellor of the Exchequer than, than anyone else. Uh, I, th I hadn't realised that, but all I can say is it shows commendable good taste by a lot of people. Yeah. Um, if I can add a personal comment, Martin is a marvellous representative of core LSE values. His work requires a great deal of analytical accuracy you, you can't take on and win against financial interests unless your arguments are pin-sharp. And pin-sharp arguments is very LSE. But in addition, his passion is for the underdog, helping people who are less powerful stick up for themselves against people who are more powerful. 
the pensioner who pays too much for fuel, the people who are overcharged for renewing their passport, etc. And campaigning for social equity is very, very LSE. For Twitter users, the hashtag for today's event is hash LSE sorcery. Uh, the event's being recorded, and we hope to make a, a podcast available online, subject to there being no technical difficulties, like Martin's mic was on mute but no longer is. Um, the plan for this evening's got... There's three bits to this evening. Martin and I will chat for about 35 minutes, uh, a bit of me and a lot more of Martin. That will leave about 35 minutes for you to put questions to Martin. Stewards in the audience have roving mics, so please wait until you have a mic. And after that, we get to the important bit, the party. My instructions say, please do also make sure to announce the free drinks reception taking place at the, at the end of the event. Bravo, Alice. <laughs> Absolutely. So now, please, will you join me in welcoming Martin back to LSE? Thank you. So to get the ball rolling, I mean, you were a student here, you were General Secretary of the Students' Union, your degree was in government, and I mean, I guess two questions. Can you remember which bits of your degree interested you most, and what's relevant in the Students' Union building? When were you last on stage in the old theatre for a union general meeting? Well, it's very strange for me to be at the LSE and talking in the student union and nobody is throwing anything at me. <laughs> Any of you who were here roughly in my area will know that a union general meeting was a, a paper-throwing fest and it was a, a war of attrition as a speaker. Could you cope while the paper was coming at you? I mean, I remember in my hustings there was an, in, an organised meeting in my particular hustings to be general secretary to put me off and there were seven black bags of paper collected at the end of my two-minute speech. <laughs> But my proudest moment about the paper, and it was a chap, I think his name was Khalid in the cricket team, and he was one of the balcony boys who sat on the upper level of the old theatre. So what you had, for those of you who aren't LSE, and I don't know the, the, the proportions here, is you had the lower level, where, where you sat in the lower level indicated your politics. So you had the left... There was an aisle. So if you're on the left of that, you were Labour, but you might have just been the other side of the left aisle. Further along, you were socialist worker, and at the very far side, you were revolutionary communist. You had the centre aisle, and then you had the Tories who stretched over the other end. Thankfully, we didn't have anyone going much further to the right than the Tories. Now, I sat, so you will all know. The, the other point I should say before I do that is, the further back you sat, the less important you are. So when you're a first year, you sit at the back, and gradually as you move... And eventually you become general secretary, you sit on the front row, and I sat three seats to the left of the centre. And I think my politics is still roughly about there. I, I'm, my, I'm three seats to the left of the centre. And I always remember one day on that... Um, so a guest came in and he walked in and it was a relatively empty old theatre at the time building in and he walked in and he sat in my seat and I said, excuse me, that's my seat. And he said, it doesn't seem to have a name on it. And I looked around and everyone went, that's his seat. And, and it was literally almost that codified that you sat, 
where you belong to sit. You earned your right to sit on the front row. You did not choose to sit on the front row. And of course, because the key to the front row is you're up and down on the stage all the time, which is why you need to be there and you can jump up there. So anyway, the point was the balcony boys are sitting on the top. There's a huge row of them and they threw paper at me. Again, obviously, you're general secretary. That's the point. You are the number one figure to throw paper at. My proudest moment, perhaps in my entire LSE career, was Khalid through this huge wad of paper. It was called a scud. It's where you've got an entire beaver. <laughs> you tied it up and then you've got another beaver that you sellotape. The beaver's the university newspaper that you sellotaped on it. So it had a handle so you could swing it <laughs> and throw it. And he threw this at me and I was talking and I remember it was quite a serious subject. And whilst talking, and you're probably understanding that I can do this and it was a great lesson, I managed to catch the paper as it was coming to me, take the handle, throw it back and hit him on the head. <laughs> and it's the only time I got a huge cheer from the balcony boys. It's the best thing I ever managed to do. But you know, the point about that, the honest point about that is live television is easy in comparison. (laughs) To talk when no one's throwing things at you (laughs) is so much nicer. So that was the first part of your question. What, What do I remember what I studied at LSE? Look, I mean, I need to be straight. I was never, I'm not particularly academic in that sense. You probably remember it. I was, I, what I loved about LSE, the number of things I loved about LSE, I remember it was in the middle at the time of, of the Yugoslav War, and I'll call it that because that was the time, although that doesn't exist anymore. And I remember something had happened. I can't remember the exact event, and it was a Sunday morning, and I went for breakfast in my hall of residence, and I was in my third year. And I was sitting around the table having a discussion, and then it dawned on me. I was there with one other Brit. We had a Serbian and a Croat, a Russian, a Chinese, uh, someone from the USA, a Chinese, a Chinese man, I should say, someone from the USA and someone from Brazil. And we had a conversation about what was going on. And I thought, where else do you get that breadth of inputs to learn about how something really works and activates? And that turned me on far more than my studies. I had a wonderful tutor in my second year, Howard Machen, who's still, who's still here. And um, Howard was brilliant because Howard understood. This is old LSE. I don't think you get away with this now, not in the tuition fee era. But Howard understood that I, I at the time, I was doing, I was a Lib Dem. I'm, I'm, I'm apolitical these days. And I was sitting on a national Lib Dem committee in my second year. And I was doing stuff at the House of Commons and I was studying government and law. And I was struggling to balance the two. And he said to me, you're going to learn so, learn so much more about government doing what you're doing. I'll handle people complaining if you're not getting the work in. And I actually went for, there was a period of about five weeks where I just didn't come to any lectures and I didn't go to any classes. And I had my tutor handling it for me because there was really important stuff going on. And you know what? Where I am today, I think for me, is far more about what I learned at being at the LSE rather than what I learned studying at the LSE. And that was a great piece of tutor work. He understood the person he was dealing with. He understood what was important to me. I wasn't skiving off, you know, drinking all night and getting up at 12 o'clock. I was going and doing some important work and he, he enabled me to do so. So my memories of the LSE, and I went on to be general secretary and, and that was what got me my first job. My memories of the LSE are far more about that holistic life here than the studies. That was a bit tough, the studies. I mean, that, that prompts the thought. I mean, if you think of tennis since it turned professional. It's got enormously better in strength and depth, technically. But something's got lost, and I actually wonder whether, with degrees mattering more for life chances than they used to, whether your sort of student experience 
happens less because we do a more professional job and that's more good than bad but it's got its downsides as well well i think it does and for those of you who don't know nick do you, do you know who nick is some I, i'm not suspecting you nick is the man who invented income contingent loans which is how student student loans now work so when you get a question like that from nick there's an underbelly going on here because this is you know i'm i headed the student finance task force uh, for a number of years but this is the man who invented it so let me answer the question honestly. I think there is. I, I struggle with the commoditization of university. I absolutely understand that there should be a more service base. And certainly when you charge a tuition fee, that there is an, a more ingrained linkage as a consumer, and that's what I do about the university experience. But where I think we have to be incredibly careful is to not allow that to step into the academic sphere. While it's great having a building like this, and students now demand it, they're paying money, they expect a service to come to a university. We need, especially in a university like the LSE, where hopefully what the service you're getting from the academics is important, and they are great thinkers and great minds like your good self. We can't start allowing a service mentality to dictate. Yes, of course, there are minimum quality thresholds and you should get your teaching and the academics should turn up and yada, yada, yada. There's the basic requirements. But what I suddenly worry about is we become too much, that universities become slightly too demand-led. And actually, there's a certain point where academia is about supply-led, where the university should dictate what you learn. And I'll be honest, I mirror that to an extent in my own work. I've, I've just got a new head of uh, operations at Money Saving Experts, so my number two. I, I deal with all content, he deals with everything else, he reports directly to me, so I, I run the place. But one of the things that I'm explaining to him about the philosophy of my website is he comes from a user experience background, as people who know the web are all about. Well, user experience is great, but I say, hold on, my, my website is not about giving users what they want. It's about giving users what they need. And sometimes we have to tell them what they need. If I gave them what they want, all they would do is get discount vouchers and deals, and they'd never sort their mortgage or their credit cards, and they would never do a power of attorney because they might get one in three people aged over 65 get dementia, and we should all be looking at doing a power of attorney. I've done one. I'm 41 in case that happens because of the terrible financial consequences. So I see my website as something hegemonic, something that provides leadership, that I'm here, you know, we have a guru sense, let's be plain as we can be, be honest in this academic institution. It's set up as a guru model because sometimes you need telling and people want to be told. They don't always want what they want. And so I think with an academic institution, there's a mirror there that the LSE should be telling its students how it's going to educate them. It sh they should be doing it at a level of quality and they should be turning up and they should not be disabusing you know, the service requirement. But I think if we move too far of that linkage, if we move too far saying, I pay for it, you know, I get it, it gets difficult. I remember when I did my postgrad in journalism, I was very happy, although I was properly paying for it out of my pocket, not in a, an income contingent system. I was actually paying for the money. And I was 26 and I'd spent a few years in the working world beforehand. And I was happy to be taught. The only time I drew the line is when, when my course tutor shouted at me in a newsroom style and he shouted at me. And I said, I'm here to learn. I, I, I've paid. I'm not here to be shouted at. Never shout at me again. And you know what? I was 26. I'd been in the working world. And I think I, think I still stand by what I did at the time. But he can tell me off and he can give me a zero out of 20 for my essay if he wants to. Just don't shout at me because I'm paying and I'm a grown-up and I'm here because I chose to. And I think it's a very different 
It's a very difficult issue. I mean, you'll know, I'm, I'm going on on the subject, but David Willits, who's the university's minister, and the whole idea behind the £9,000 and the six to £9,000 range is to give a, a market-based choice. Well, that has failed abysmally. I mean, the funding of, if we separate the funding of university from the market choice of a university institution, the problem is this is quite simple. You know, under the 2012 regime, it, for, the, for many students, you will pay no more on a £9,000 course than a £6,000 course. Because in the 30 years before the loan, in the 30 years after that, the loan ends, under the nine, paying 9% of everything above 20, well, it's so nice to talk to an audience where I don't feel I have to explain in advance, uh, paying 9% of everything above £21,000, actually, you have to be a pretty high earner to have paid off the course and maintenance in full at £6,000, never mind £9,000. So there isn't really a choice. And when students say to me, should I go for the cheap course? No, don't be silly. Go for the, go for the course that's right for you. If it happens to be more expensive, you're only going to be pay for it if you're really successful and I'd like you to aim to be really successful so I hope you pay for it I hope it costs you more because it probably means you've got a starting salary of about 30,000 pounds and then your salary is rising above inflation after that um, for the next 30 years of your of your life and if you're doing that well then you can afford to pay for the 9,000 pound course and so the marketization element hasn't worked and I find it I do find it a little bit distasteful anyway I mean, what do you think? I should ask you. You're, you're, you're to blame. We, 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 we were chatting a bit before, and we, you know, Martin and I could clearly chat all evening about this because I think we agree on a lot of fundamentals, disagree in important ways on the details of finance. But I think one of the great insights of economics, I mean, economics makes a lot of mistakes, believe me, but one of the great insights is the idea of optimization not maximization or minimization. So is competition in higher education beneficial? I would say yes. Does that mean it should be as competitive as the market for clothes and smartphones? Absolutely not. Competition should be optimized, not maximized. If competition gets people to turn up for classes punctually, to mark essays with enough, you know, with, with, with proper comments within two weeks, then I'm all in favour Is that of competition it. or charging, though, Nick? Is that, is that having a price tag or market competition amongst universities? Because I think that's, that's about it, having a price tag. People turn up because they feel they're paying for it. They don't turn up, not about the choice between different academic institutions. I think it does. I mean, I mean my evidence was until 1980... LSE, like all universities, got British taxpayer money for foreign students as well as British students. We lost that overnight in 1980. So we had to go out and hustle for overseas students and charge them fees. So they came to us, they continued to come to us, they handed us large checks. And guess what happened? We started to be nice to them. If, if an American student complained that uh, their, tutor, you know, their teacher hadn't turned up for class, you know, the director would beat up on the head of department who would beat up on the teacher, which would never have happened in my undergraduate days when you know, it was all sort of rather sort of gently shambolic. So, I, I mean, I agree with you that what you experienced with Howard Machin is the way it ought to be. And 
whilst I'm in favour of competition, particularly about process, turning up on time, etc., I think, I agree, it can go too far. I should say, by the way, my third-year tutor broke my balls if I didn't hand an essay in and had exactly the opposite attitude. I was very sad to have left Howard. And, and I should say, one, one correction, I did not invent income-contingent loans. Income-contingent loans were invented by Milton Friedman in 1945. And if any of you follow impact, it took 50 years before it had any impact. My role in this was to pick up what I thought was a good idea and actively promote it. Implemented it. You were the one yeah. who lobbied. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and our relationship, so you know, um, um, Nick and, and a wonderful chap, the late Ian Crawford, uh, who we both knew very well, who was the, the head press officer here, but was a, a political player. He used that role to politically intervene and to lobby at the time. So uh, Ian was the big gob, and I'm a big gob, so I'm allowed to say that about him. And I think Ian, Ian would smile at my phrasing. Absolutely. 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 He wanted me to be press officer, press officer after him, if Absolutely. you remember that. Absolutely. So we had a very did, good yes. relationship. Yeah. And, and, and Nick was the brains behind it, behind the plan there. You'll try and be modest, but you were. Um, so, and then he talked to me at the time as an active student union hack. And what, what sold me then that still sells me now, although I never liked the idea, I like the idea of income contingent loans. For those of you who don't know, that means paying through the payroll. The more you earn, the more you pay. It's effectively like a tax. Um, what sold me, I didn't like tuition fees. And I still slightly don't like tuition fees. I like this as a form of repaying your maintenance, which is how it was in, originally introduced. But the thing that did sell me on the system of making it more viable, and, and you talk about this now, but if you'll give me, I'll knit your line. Um, was that in 1979, when 2% of people went to university, the 98% who didn't paid for them. Yet many people, even on the left, Look at that as that was the golden era. No, that was an era of snobbish elitism and no social mobility. But while it may have been the golden era because you didn't have to pay for university, of course we all have to pay. You know, this idea that education is never free. It's just paid for by the taxpayer. That's not a bad thing. I'm fundamentally in favour of it. But we shouldn't ever use this term free when something has to be paid for. So the idea that 2% of people being paid for by, well, I'm unfair to say being paid for by the 98, 2 2% being paid for by the 100%, I think is actually a fairer way to describe it. And that that was a great socialist model, I didn't agree with. And so for me, the idea, we now have 50% of people going to university, but those who gain after their education have to contribute somewhat. I do feel that is a more socially just system. Where we disagree with is how much you charge, how much you repay. We, I think we have a fundamental difference that... I don't like charging real rates of interest to graduates. You like it from an economic basis. You think it's right. I think it's wrong on a principled basis, even though I am actually aware that most people won't end up paying the interest. I just think it's wrong on a principled basis so that we educate our youth into debt. And we make them pay for it, or what we call debt, I should say. But we shouldn't charge them for financing that debt. I think that I struggle with that leap, but I don't struggle on a on a mathematical basis. I struggle on an emotional basis that I think that's a step too far. But, you know, that's a relatively nuanced, nuanced difference between us. I would, I would, we could discuss this. We could. We probably shouldn't. And shouldn't. I hope at some stage we get a chance. But I was going to say that was you, you, you came here to get a taste of this, not a, the sort of wrestling in mud over interest rates on student loans. Sorry. Um, yes. No, no, no. It's. I mean, as you know, what, one of the things that Martin does is to um, provide accurate, user-friendly information, both on the website and in radio and television, and certainly campaigning against dodgy financial practices. And, I mean, 
again, a, a double-barreled question. Which of your victories are you proudest of, and which current dragon would you most like to see slain? Oof. I think that... The I mean, obviously, bank charges was, was an incredible thing because it helped the people at the very bottom of society. Yes. But we got a billion pounds back and then we were shut off by the big institutions of state, as far as I'm concerned. They, you know, we, we won in the High Court, we won in the Court of Appeal. Remind people what, you, what the victory so, on bank charges so, was. So the idea of bank charges was that bank charges for going beyond your overdraft limit were unfair because there was no competition they were never advertised and they were a disproportionate charge it does not charge cost as it used to and, and thankfully the one victory is those fees have come down uh, and, and that was a big campaigning part of it that, that was what went on they used to, it doesn't cost £35 um, to send a letter telling you you've gone beyond your overdraft limit especially if they're not even paying it and, and what happened here is a very bit difficult public argument because with bank charges people said but hold on people are taking money that isn't theirs so they should pay for it well, actually, what you have to remember is before bank charges existed, what used to happen is you had, an amount, you had an overdraft limit, and if you went beyond, it wasn't paid, and you couldn't do it. And then some clever sod at a bank decided, if we let them go beyond, and then so you, what you really have is you have your overdraft limit, and then this is what they never tell you. Beyond your overdraft limit, you have your paid, unauthorised overdraft limit. In other words, another set amount wh whereby if you spend, they will pay the transaction, but they will charge you a fee for doing so. And then above that, there's your unpaid limit, where if you spend, they won't pay the person you want to pay, but they'll charge you a fee for doing so. so and it made them £3 billion a year. So all those people who are righteously saying... Hold on, people are taking money they haven't got. No, what we have here is a service provided by the banks that they never advertise in any of their literature, apart from the terms and conditions. It's a disproportionate cost to the amount of money that it actually costs them to send the letters, which under European law, that should be appropriate. And finally, it's a, it's a cross-subsidy of the poorest in society to pay for what we call free banking. It's actually fee-free banking when you're in credit. And that seemed very wrong to me. So we campaigned and I started doing template letters. I think 6.2 million of them were used. We, there was a billion pounds paid back in bank charges, which I think my site and, uh, and the work I did was probably responsible for between half and three quarters of it. So, you know, a nice sum, half, half a billion, three quarters of a billion, back into real people's pockets. And then the problem was it then finally the institutions, after years of campaign, took notice, the OFT took them um, and when we were involved in this with our legals and barristers and whatsoever to the High Court and won, to the Court of Appeal and won, and then the Supreme Court on a technicality and it was a technicality did not rule that bank charges were fair they ruled that bank charges didn't have to be fair under the European Union regulations that was what we lost on. And then we went back to the OFT and said, well, we've tried that regulation and here's four others. And they said, we don't think it's in the public interest. And I personally put £50,000 into paying a barrister to get and a good QC to come up with an opinion based on the other law. And we said, we've got this here, we'd like you to take it on. And they said no. And I said at the time, I went and asked, how much will it cost? How much will it cost to, to rekindle this? And I was told it'd be three to five million. And I didn't have the pocket. I mean, I do have the pocket now, as some of you will know, but, but the way the bank charges work has changed since, so that doesn't work anymore. Uh, and, and so we, we stopped. But we got people a billion pounds back. Obviously, PPI is bigger. That's 20 billion in total. I think we're probably between 5 and 10 billion of that, which is, again, very nice. And, and by the way, if you want to know why we're having economic boom, right, 
20 billion back in the economy. There was between 8 to 10 billion paid in PPI last year. The people who get PPI payouts tend not to save it. They tend to spend it or pay off their debts. Holidays and new cars is what's happening. The reason I was on a program with George Osborne the other week, let's just think about this for a second. So half of our economic boost is actually the true quantitative easing in this country called PPI. What the, bank, what the government has done went into banks' pockets, not punters' pockets. Put money in punters' pockets, they spend. Then, you know, I won't do it in front of you. I'm not an economist. I did government and law. But a good bit of Keynesian economics, the old simple stuff. If I pay you, well, you, if I spend from you, you go and spend from someone else and it helps generate the economy. And the reason I think George Osborne and the Tories have a good chance in the next general election is because Lloyds have just said it needs to put aside another couple of billion. And I think there's another five to seven billion pounds that need to be put aside by the banks because we're still campaigning hard to get people their money. And I reckon that will stop by pure coincidence. And I do believe it's coincidence, not real. That will stop just after the next general election. So it's the bank's naughtiness that's saving the government's bacon? Well, I certainly think, listen, I'm being slightly poetic in my license here about how much it's going. But I certainly think it is a very generous stimulus to real people in the economy, PPI. It was a brilliant savings product, in effect, a forced form of savings for people who were... um, either financially ignorant or lied to and defrauded. And let's call it the truth. PPI was a fraud. I asked you, do you want payment protection insurance? You said no. I added it. It cost you £5,000. That's fraud. You asked me, do I have to have this PPI? I tell you, yes, you don't. That's a lie. I call that fraud. No one's been prosecuted. But is it not fraud? You know, I've had an £80,000 payout for an individual. I call an £80,000 payout from someone who was lied to. I call that fraud. And I think that's quite a substantial fraud, but no one has ever been prosecuted. So, effectively, it was a forced savings product because then you get the money back plus 8% statutory interest. Pretty good, isn't it? 8% interest, not compounded, I should say, but 8% interest is what you get back. It was a great savings product, and it was a savings product in boom times that's been paid back in times of recession. It's been a great boom. And politicians never said anything about it. I spoke about it first in 2001. That was the first time I wrote, don't get your PPI. It's a rip-off. In 2006, I launched the the reclaiming campaign. By 2009, the FCA, or the FSA as it was, finally picked it up. By 2010, I heard the first thing said about it by a major politician. But we'd already got people about £3 billion back. This is £3 billion. This isn't a drop in the ocean a bit of triviality that politicians can ignore and yet they just didn't want to play the game and it was great for me it helped build my career of course it did but oh is ppi yeah i do think a good chunk of economic recovery is down to ppi let me let me give you the good news my first piece of policy writing became policy after 20 years my second one income contingent loans became policy after 10 years my wife said to me you are getting more productive. <laughs> now, the more success you have, the more you will be listened to, not in the end, but in the beginning. And I mean, the bank charges thing, I mean, any chance of getting that onto a party political manifesto? Well, the problem is, in some ways, we've won. Because with the exception of Clydesdale Bank that charges £25 a pop, most banks now charge something like 5 or £10 per day, not per transaction. And, and just to understand the differentiator, I remember the woman who had checked her bank account the day before. A cheque from six weeks earlier had been paid the next day and she'd forgotten about it for about the same amount that took her 
onto her unauthorised overdraft limit. So she hadn't done much wrong, had she? She'd checked. She'd been out. She'd spent £35 in seven shops. And one of them was a £1.85 bag of carrots on her debit card. Each one of those seven transactions cost her £35. Right? So she's 250 quid charges for spending 35 quid having checked. Now... The reason I got involved in the bank charges campaign, I remember, I remember the woman. I remember it distinctly because it was at a fun fair when I was filming and she told me about this. And someone had come to me telling me that this was illegal, would I look into it and whatever, and, and they'd done. And she was at a fun fair and she, was, she said to me, this is what happened. She was on benefits, but she says, I'm a follower of yours, I budget. Great. I budget every week, I never spend beyond my benefits. But I have regular payments that come out. The benefits office failed to pay me. I can't remember whether it was per week or per month. Forgive me on that. It's a long time ago now. But the benefits office failed to pay me. I chased them and I got the money three weeks later. But my regular payments meant I had £100-ish of bank charges and my income was £80 a week. I had no way to meet that. That was impossible. And I'd met her a year later when the charges on the charges, having never badly budgeted and gone, spent beyond her means in any form of way that any of us, no matter how clever we are, could have stopped. And by the way, she was a carer for her autistic children. That's why she was on benefits, in case we have anybody who's particularly anti... You know, it's about as good as it gets. She was saving the state money by being a carer. Charges on charges, £3,000 after a year. And she was looking at bankruptcy. Now, for me, that is a system maliciously designed to entrap. Maliciously designed. So, the real joy of the system is £5 a day or £10 a day, while not nice, can't snowball in that way, and many of them have monthly caps on it and start dealing with it. So what we did do, and part of the contract when the OFT settled, and I was involved in the meetings which went on, was was, they said to the banks, this will go quiet and go away, but you have to change your unauthorised transactions. What they then did, though, interestingly, is they increased authorised overdraft charges. So that, because they don't want those who are in credit to have to pay what they actually, their bank actually costs. They prefer to subsidise it from those who are overdrawn because the affluent customers who are in credit, they need to like their banks so that they will get mortgages and other products from them. So that's a major dragon you have slain or at least left it sort of whimpering in the gutter. Uh, which, is the, um, which, which current dragon would you most like to kill if that's not an well, indiscreet question? I'm actively involved on CPP and PPI is, is nowhere near over. Council tax reclaiming was a big one I liked. I'm go- talking so that I'm thinking. Um, CPP? CP- uh, car protection plans, £1.3 billion missold. Everyone's getting their letters at the moment. No one knows how to fill them in because they didn't understand why they were missold. They were missold because they were sold an insurance policy that basically didn't cover you for anything. It's great. Insurance is a very clever system. I'm going to invent a Nick Barr policy. I'm going to tell you there's all the Nick Barr policy because there's a risk that Nick Barr is going to punch you all in the face. You're all going to say, well, they're selling me an insurance policy about this Nick Barr risk. It must be a realistic and manifest risk that Nick Barr would punch me in the face because otherwise he wouldn't have set up an insurance policy because that Nick Barr, he's probably got a record of going and punching people in the face. And I'm sorry, Nick. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm in a room with him. So, I'm got, so, so you're now going to be sitting there going, well, they've offered me this policy. There must be something in this policy or they wouldn't be selling me the policy. I'm naturally risk averse and I'm slightly worried. I'm in a room with Nick Barr now. <gasps> OK, I'm going to pay the £40 a year to get... The, and that's how a lot of insurance policies work. So what they did with CPP is they told you, we've got an insurance policy to cover you if, so, if your card is lost or stolen of the fraudulent transactions that are made. The banks already do it. You're not liable. 
oh, I better get it then. It's only 30 quid a year, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll tick the box. I'll tick the box. And ID fraud, we're all worried about our identities being stolen, are we? Yeah, but what's the liability? Because this doesn't cover you from the cost if someone genuinely defrauds you. The banks cover the liability. No, there wasn't really a risk. So they invented a risk that was massively overblown, as said by the FCA. They sold a policy, £1.3 billion on it. Now we're trying to get people to get it back. But people go, but I thought they were so missold. It was so beautifully sold. Right? That people still don't know that they've got an insurance policy that's bollocks. <laughs> right? And therefore, when you try and say, what do I fill in the form? Because I, I don't feel I was missold. You were basically lied to about what this policy does. So that's why I do templates. Because people sort of now get, and, and I have to, it's very difficult because you don't want people to get the money back if they weren't missold. And on PPI, we're very careful with that. But this comes to a certain point where people go, and, and I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate and, and proud and lucky to be in the position where if I write template letters for people on CPP, they'll go, I don't really get this, but Martin's telling me to put that in the box, exactly. so I'll put it in the yeah. box. Right, and so if that helps 7 million people get their two or 300 quid that they should never pay back, I think we have to cope with the, the few people who will get money back that they shouldn't. Because you've got a letter asking you to fill the form in, and if you've got that letter, the strong likelihood is you were missold. What's the, current, what's the big one that worries me right now? And again, I tackled George Osborne about this the other day. I think we have a mortgage ticking time bomb in the United Kingdom at the moment. Uh, it staggers me we're encouraging people to buy houses with only 5% deposits when we're in an inflated house price market. But it isn't the inflated house price market that worries me. Interest rate? The interest rate margin on mortgages. The margin, not the actual interest rate. Pre-base rate drop you would typically pay 1.5% to 2% above base rates on your mortgage. That was SVR. Now it's 35 to 4%, and in many cases, 5%. And if you're on help to buy, certainly 5%. 5% above base. So let's talk above base. So we all know current interest rates are an anomaly. It's very difficult to tell people you live in an anomaly. They never believe it. Now, we, now is not normal. Now is very not normal. It is 200, we are 2% below the prior 200-year lowest ever rate right now. We are, it is a highly strange time. If we go back to what people call the new normal, 4%, let's go say 4%, might be 5, it might not be, and it won't be next year, but it might be the year after or the year after or the year after that. We go back to 4% with a margin of 4% above base, people are going to see their mortgages jump to 8% interest. Fundamentally unaffordable, especially the type of people who've got small deposits. And what we have to do, you know, economic recovery will be great unless it's killed by the fact that we're going to have simply a nation in mortgage arrears and under repossessions because they cannot pay their housing bills. And we will soon straight be back in bust. So we have to have some form of policy. It's different. It's not a reclaim. We have to have some form of joined up policy that at least says that if mortgages go back to those rates, the margins have to... We could have a drop the margins now, which I would like, because I'm biased towards consumers, obviously. But that when interest rates go back, those margins will decrease again. But I'm not sure that they will. I'm just not sure that they will. And we have a problem in this country that the property porn shows on the television have encouraged a nation to buy and to think that renting is a dirty word, which it isn't always a dirty word. I remember talking to a German economist who said to me, I'm going to do the accent, I shouldn't do the I'm going to do it, I shouldn't. Can I do it? You know, it's terrible, I know. I don't understand why in Britain you celebrate inflation when it comes to house prices. And I thought, what a good point. We celebrate prices going up. 
I mean, I mean, who really gains? Only the downsizer. When you're in your existing house, you don't actually gain. Yes, you might be able to falsely remortgage and put your credit cards on it, but that's just expanding your debt and taking it a bit longer. Yeah, but if you want to upgrade your house, you're going to, it means the differential's grown, doesn't it? So you're not really gaining that. Why do we quite celebrate house price rises so much and see it as a good thing that our properties have gone up in price because we're going to sell them? Wow, I bought it for a million. I'm getting two million back if you're in central London. Is it really that good if you're then going to buy a three million property? Or, you know, mm-hmm. I bought it for 100000 now. OK, yes, there are some advantages to it, but not as many as people think. So I think we have a real problem, a real problem, when it comes to the mortgage rates we have in this country at the moment. And we need policy to do this before interest rates go back up. I said it to uh, the Chancellor. I am aware internally that I scared him on that programme. He had no answer for me and the presenter let him off because um, I was in a debate programme with him. And, but I'm also aware I've heard on the back end that his policy team are very scared that I'm going about saying this and saying that nobody is doing anything about it. I should note, by the way, I mo- wrote my first blog on that in uh, March 2009. I'm not saying it for the first time now. And just to make the point that this is not an exaggeration, uh, I'm old enough to remember having to pay 15% on my mortgage. So... But there's, there's and, and I don't mean elasticity in the, in the economic sense. If I give you a £500 a month pay rise and then I take it off you, you will be poorer afterwards than you were before because we change the way that our spending habits work. We have more commitments when we earn more money. We don't value the money when it's taken away from us the same way as when it's added on. And that's the problem with it bouncing back. The fact yes. it's been there before, we're not used to it. We don't plan our finances for these type of eventualities. It's far costlier to go from 4% to 8% than, it, than, it use, than the gain from 8% to 4%. If we did it in happiness terms, the, the misery caused by 4 to 8% is much greater than the happiness gained from by 8 to 4 Just for the economists in the, in the audience, diminishing marginal utility of income. The happiness you get from extra income is much smaller than the unhappiness you get from a decline in income. So, I mean, I, 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 you're absolutely right. I mean, the point about 15% was not, I was all yeah. right. It was, it was horrible, and what you're talking about is not a theoretical horrible. It, it, you know, it, it, it will happen. If, I mean, not it might happen. If nothing is done, it will happen. It will happen. It will happen. Can I be, we, we need to make time for the audience. Before we do that, I have, I have one more thing that I, I, I need to raise, and that is I, I wanted to... Martin, a, a very important young lady, has recently entered your life. And I wanted to congratulate you and let you tell us a bit Thank about you. her. My wife's at the back, so don't get too worried. This is a 16-month-old lady um, who is, is, is the second love of my life. Her name is... Her name, oops, my mic's gone. I always, get, I always get misty-eyed when I think of my daughter. She's gorgeous. She did the alphabet for the first time all the way through yesterday. At 16 months, we're very proud. <laughs> we are very proud. Um, uh, my next lesson, I'm going to teach you how to do cubes. I mean, just by rote, but I just think it'd be great to be able to say, what's the, cu- what's the cube, or what, what's three cubed? And her to go, fine. I just think it really freak people out. <laughs> Won't it be absolutely marvellous? Yeah, she's absolutely do- uh, uh, gorgeous and wonderful and beautiful and is, is a new lease of life. And I always said, you know, one of my big campaigns... Uh, <laughs> 
I always thought that I would dedicate most of the rest of my career to getting financial education on the national curriculum. That one only took me two and a half years. And almost when it happened, I went, oh, poo. <laughs> what am I going to do now? Because that was always the big thing. And I always said I wanted it to be on the national curriculum by the time my daughter was starting school. Well, it starts this September on the national curriculum, which is, is perhaps of everything I've done. You ask me what I'm most proud of, that, that's the one I should have answered. Getting financial education in schools, that is the biggest change that we can have to our society. That, that will diminish the number of mis-selling cases that we have, the number of compensation cases. We'll have a more educated consumer, we'll have a more engaged consumer. It's not going to take 10 years, it's going to take 20, 25 years. And, you know, I'm, my daughter isn't going to need it because her daddy's going to tell her. And her mummy as well. She's far tighter than me, I can see about that. Uh, <laughs> so she's going to be well educated. But the problem is, people say this is a parent's job. I hate that argument. That is just, you know, you have social inequality and then you have educational inequality. And the point is, if your parents know nothing about money and have got it all wrong, how are they going to educate you? And that's, that's a middle-class bit of snobbery that frankly says, I can teach my children, why should the school teach it? Because your children are just perpetuated in a financial elite in that case. And actually, we need financial education of every child. It isn't, I didn't do it for my daughter. My daughter has every gift in the world with parents. She's incredibly lucky. Our job is to make sure she isn't spoilt not to you know not to educate her because that will happen but it's all those people out there who who are just constantly ripped off i mean just remember that go back to the bank charges go back to that three billion pounds a year of the poorest in society to subsidize fee-free banking for those in credit the richest and nobody realized it None of these people paying actually realise that subsidy. I want you to know you're being ripped off. You may still get ripped off. You may still have no choice. But at least if you know you're angry. And if you're angry, then we get social mobilisation rather than mobility. Social mobilisation to do something about it. An angry voice, and especially the angry voice of voters, can be a powerful one. Hmm. Your turn. Questions to Martin. There's one at the back there. And there's one at the back there. Let's, let, let's take two or three questions. Um, if you can just you say were, who you are. Um, my name's Etienne Pollard. I'm not an LSE alumnus. Um, I went to Imperial, which means I'm an engineer. And we'll let you off. Thank you. Uh, but I'm interested, if you were made pensions um, secretary of state or minister or whatever it is tomorrow, what are the three things that you would do? You want to take a second Okay. Maybe take two or three. Yeah, take three things I would do, gosh. So there's somebody with the mic there. Okay. Um, yeah, Martin, we studied together and I can remember being, ha- being I, in I halls. I just recognise you and see who you are. How nice yeah, to see you. Yeah, nice to see you. And I remember at Rosebury, even at breakfast, you had to have a really good kind of argument because anyone on the table could kind of pick you up, really, if you said anything wrong. Um, Kind of on a personal level, you know, when we were at the LSC, there were so many different things we could do. How did you kind of manage your time to kind of achieve what you've achieved? And also, what was your motivation? Because I know for myself, I was motivated partly by family loss, which really made me appreciate the value of life. But I was interested if you, how you've been motivated to keep going in your life and achieve so much and manage your time as well. Uh, let me take the second one first, if I may. Um, I mean, you, you probably know this. I, I suffered 
loss as a child, a, a parental loss. And, and you know, there's some, I think the, my 10 predecessors, a general secretary of LSE, had as well. Really? And there are lots of stats yeah. of, of, of the success of people who, who lost a parent young. Uh, it, it's not worth it, I have to say. Um, but it gives you a drive. And I think the things it gives, uh, uh, what you're alluding to there, the thing about, I don't think it, I don't think it, it spurs you on. It gives you a certain ability that nothing is going to be quite as bad as it's already been, so you can go for it because you've got, you've got a drive to prove yourself and to get on with it and to make life better. So I certainly have that. Um, well, how do I manage time badly? I mean, people always ask me what the recipe for, for being successful is, and I, I think it, it's a number of things. The first one is have talent, but I sus- quite a lot of people do. I don't think it's as rare as people think talent. Uh, I think there are a lot of people out there. The second one is focus, and I think people are very bad at focusing. Pick your niche and stick with it. The third one is hard work. 90 hours a week for 20, for 20 years means that I'm now 41, but I've worked the hours that most people do by the time they're 60. It's quite a simple recipe. It's an easy bit of maths, you know, and I do try and cut my work down now. I'm finally at that stage. But that's down to 55, 60 hours a week because I can't keep it up anymore. And the final one and the most important one is luck. Right, and don't let anybody tell you any different. So how do I keep the drive and motivation? I'm not motivated by money. I've been very lucky. I've been financially successful. That isn't something I have to worry about anymore. I'm motivated by um, the privileged position that I'm in. I, I, I am in a position where I can effect change. And probably, if you forgive me more... If I really care about something, then I can cause trouble about it more quickly than, than, than you could Absolutely. in a position Absolutely. as an academic. Yeah, yeah. And what an immense privilege that is. Uh, it's very difficult. It's very difficult because people want you to do every type of campaign under the sun and you can't. And, and the biggest constraint on me is, is me as a personal resource. That I, you know, that there's a lot of things that when you do what I do, it has to be you. I have a wonderful team, but they can't do this tonight. They can't be doing my speech at Ideal Home tomorrow. They can't be one on the TV programme. They're not the one who will go into the room with a, with a deputy prime minister and be able to say, you need to do this. And if you don't, or on financial education, I shall tell the story. What happened on that is we'd asked them to do certain things on the curriculum. And three days before it was announced, I was told they were going to have financial numeracy examples in mathematics. We had something else in citizenship as well, but they weren't going to break it out into financial numeracy as we'd wanted and they weren't going to give contemporaneous examples and my big argument in financial education it has to be contemporaneous examples has to be because if it isn't kids think it's theoretical and you have to tell them they're doing financial numeracy so and you have to do that explanation this is now real what I'm telling you when we do credit card minimum repayments is real that was a big point of mine and we said we hadn't got it and I looked at the minister um, and I said I have to tell you, if you do that, and it was my thing, I mean, I, I, this was my campaign, it was me who got it in Parliament, the debate and everything. If you do that, I will have to put a statement out saying this isn't really financial education in schools. I just want you to know. And I got a call the next day saying, all right, you're getting what you want, will you support us? And I said, I'll be on your press release, delighted. Now, that's a privilege. And, and it, it gives me nightmares, and it means I sometimes wake up in the morning with anxiety, because it's, it, power is very scary, and sometimes I hate it. My wife will tell you the truth of that. I hate it, and I find it very difficult to deal with. But you ask the motivation. Where I am now, the motivation is, you know, I have things... I want to, I want to tackle mental health and debt. The, the, the horrible marriage that 49% of people who've got mental health problems have had crisis debts compared to 9% of everyone else. It's disgusting, and we have real systemic change that we need there. 
I think I'm one of the few people in a position that I can actually make that happen in a few years' time. So what drives me now is the knowledge that if I don't do it, it might not happen. And I find that very difficult to live with myself, therefore I can't do it. But it puts a lot of pressure on, and it's not always nice, if I'm being honest, in, in it, as someone I knew when I was younger. I, mean, I was much happier and happy-go-lucky then than I am now. There's, there's weight on shoulders, and, and it bears. Pensions. Um, I think one of the problems with pensions in this country is, it, is, is a lexicographical one, if you forgive me. I think it's all down to words, and as a Scrabble player, I quite like this. We had mortgage endowments. You'll all remember those. Endowments were a with-profits policy, effectively a slush fund of investment. You put your money in, you didn't know what was going on, and they hideously underperformed. And boy, we all hated our endowments because we felt we were missold them and they didn't perform well. Pensions in the 70s, 80s and early 90s were the same investment. They were with profits funds. People put the money in because they were told to and they invested in it and they didn't do very well. But we didn't call them pension endowments. We called them pensions. And so what everybody did is they blamed the pension for the investment they chose to put in their pension. A pension is just a tax wrapper that's beneficial in old age. But they blame the pension. So pensions, people go, pensions. But they don't go, mortgages, because we call them mortgage endowments. We blame the endowment word, not the mortgage word. But in pensions, because we didn't call it a separate word, we didn't have pensions and pension endowments, they blame the pension. And pensions got an incredibly bad reputation on the back of that. So actually, there's a little bit of... The first stages is some marketing about pensions, an explanation of what pensions are. Most people don't get... Most, no pension has performed badly in the United Kingdom. Not one. Maybe some corporates. I, I said, no, actually, no. Because a pension's a tax wrapper. It's just the thing you chose to put your, in your pension that performed badly. Your underlying investment performed badly. And understanding that's very important. Yes. So what would I do? One, financial education in schools on pensions. And I hope that that will happen. But that's a long-term game. Two, I'm a big supporter of auto-enrolment. I think it's absolutely the right decision. But I think we have to explain it very carefully. And I do this. Uh, you know, the way I say to people, because people don't get it. We're in an educated room in here. People don't get pensions. If you don't do it, your companies are going to give you extra money and you're turning it down. You're turning down a pay rise. You know, yeah. And we have to go to that level of simplification. And number three, I think we have to tackle the complete mismire that is corporate pensions and company pensions and where they sit and have some fairness in them and the way that we bring companies down with them because the entire thing was just predicated on, on, on a bad piece of economics. It didn't work. How we fix that, I will answer another day when I've got one for you. And just let, let, let me pick up on that because please, pensions, higher education is one bit of my life. Pensions is another. And I've been very lucky to do a lot of writing over the last 10 years with Peter Diamond at MIT, who finally, rightfully won the Nobel Prize in 2010. So it's been the most wonderful theoretical education for me. But one of the things that he and I both bang on about in our writing, and it's the only bit of advice I ever give people about pensions, is look at the administrative charges. If your pension fund charges you 1% of your accumulation per year, then over a full working life, your accumulation will be 20% smaller than it otherwise would be. Hence, your pension will be 20% smaller. And if you then think 1% is at the lower end of charges, and you see that in countries like Hungary, administrative charges are 30%, if you're not careful, pensions become a device for shifting money from the pocket of the worker to the pocket of the fund manager, which is a great objective for some people, but it's not mine. No, the, the difficulty as well, but you're talking... I mean, the problem with that is that, that even that 
is too complicated for most people. I, I, you're absolutely yeah. right. I'm not disagreeing with you. Let's be straight here. The majority of people in the UK turn their pension into an annuity, a payment each year for life until you die. 60% of them get it from the pension company. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right, 60%, which will give you uh, generally a relatively poor rate. So... 20 minutes spent finding yourself a better rate gives you a higher income each year for the rest of your life and you can't change your mind, but 60% of people don't do it. There's also a huge chunk of people who smoke but decide this isn't the time to show off about it. No, an annuity pays you more if you're going to die sooner. It's the one financial product where smoking is beneficial. I don't suggest you take it up. Your health is more important and you have to... Interesting... To get an annuity smoker's enhancement, you have to have been smoking consistently for 10 years beforehand. <laughs> to get a reduction, to, to count as a non-smoker for the policies where being a non-smoker makes it cheaper, well, to count, to count as a non-smoker, you can't have had one drag on the cigarette in the last year. So 10 years consistently versus if you have a social smoker who did it once in the last year, you're a smoker. You don't get the benefit of being a smoker on the other ones. So... I mean, we're so far away, which is why actually, and I I suspect where you're going, is we have to do that. I'm going to be paternal and I'm not afraid that policymakers and and people like yourselves and me, we have to lobby to get the charges down because actually the vast majority of the public who don't do this, especially doing it through auto-enrolment and company pensions, they're just not going to get to your argument. That we're going to, again, that will just be the sophisticated investors who tend to be more affluent anyway. And we're we're going to screw the poorer. So the difficulty, while I desperately agree... I think that message is one step too complex, and maybe that's because... Oh, no, that, 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 I'm merely making that as a standalone I, I point. Agree. I agree, mean, but I mean, my, my, the, the, the division between the two of us, not, and not in, in argument in what you do and what I do, is you come up with the right solution, and I accept you do in the perfect solution. I have to see how... And you come up from a policy level. I see how real people deal with this. That's my job. And I look at that and think, you know, I love the idea recently that the pensions minister came up with that you'd be able to break your annuity and you'd be able to choose a new one. What a wonderful idea for the 40% of people who chose well in the first place, but for the 60% of people who chose their pension from the pension provider. Do you honestly think after 10 years, when they're now 75 or 80, they're going to take a market competition choice? No, they're going to stick with what they've got. So it's a great idea in principle. I'm not saying you came up with that. Uh, It's a great idea in principle, but unfortunately we sometimes have a problem in these type of massive financial products where it isn't about choice. It it is about policy to protect. I'd be even stronger than you. Economic theory, economics of information, behavioural economics says it's too complicated, people won't get it. Um, None of us is allowed to go into boots and buy any pharmaceutical drugs we want because it is thought quite rightly we don't know enough to make those choices. We need we need a prescription. And I think pensions are much more like pharmaceutical drugs than they are like smartphones. And it, you, you called it sort of paternalism. It's, 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 it's actually not. You can actually justify it in theory and say it ought to be simpler, there ought to be mandates or auto-enrolment, and the savings things should be very simple and with very little choice for work. So it's interesting. I do think in that circumstance I agree with you on pensions, but I often fight simpli- product simplicity, which is something the FCA is very keen on at the moment. And in there are a number of... Pro- what I don't want to do is 
What, and we, what we can't risk doing is killing the competitive marketplace for the idea of simplification for all. And I think, therefore, we need a, a, a diversified marketplace which allows complexity for those people who understand it where there is competition, but has simplicity for those who aren't making choices. Let's be honest, auto-enrolment for most people, you're not making choices. The, the, the analogy that I use is that I think most people want Marks and Spencer's pensions. That doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with Savile Row pensions for people with the money and the interest. But the default... Probably over expensive and Savile Row, but yeah, you know, it's okay. all about the brand. I'm struggling. Yeah. But I agree. <laughs> Can I lob in... I, I want to abuse my position as chairman to lob in a question that... Um, I, th- I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's relevant certainly to the students in the audience, but possibly to others. It's something that comes up in the news from time to time. What happens if you've got a contract with a provider? Vodafone, BT. You've got a contract, and in the middle of the contract, they cut your free minutes or they raise the price, what, 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 what does money savings experts say about that? Well, we've campaigned for a long time and actually Ofcom changed the rules about two or three months ago that they can no longer, they can no longer increase prices unless it says they will in the contract and they can only do it by the rate of inflation. So it has to, it's interesting, they can't say they may. They have to say they will. So they can say at this point during the year, we will increase prices by the rate of inflation at next March. And that is deemed fair contract. There are some loopholes in it, but basically, and if they do it by more than that, then you have the ability to leave and, and to break your contract. So it has always been an unfair term. If you're on a fixed contract, fixed should mean fixed. And we have this in many different areas of regulation that the terminology has to mean the natural terminology. We have a tracker mortgage rate that was, I've just forgotten which institution it was, um, who increased its tracker mortgage rate. Well, you can't. It's a tracker. And, you know, and, and you told, and yes, maybe on page 471 of your legalese terms and conditions, you said you could, but that's not right. And I, it, it actually interestingly comes down to one of my beliefs is people talk about terms and conditions, I think there are actually three levels of most products in in sophisticated finance or or, or mobile phones. You have the core product points, the summary points, and the legalese. Frankly, if it's a main point of your product, I think it has to be in number one. It cannot be in the legalese. So if you're going to give yourself an important opt-out clause, and by that I mean... We we reserve the right to increase your price. I want to see that right at the very top. Otherwise, you can't do it. And putting it in your... I mean, we're an educated audience here. Let me ask the question. Who reads the terms and conditions of everything they sign up for? No. Who who doesn't? Who doesn't? Every single... And and, and now, let me say terms and conditions. Come on, the brave people, put your hands up. I'm, I'm going to pick on you. The three of you, four of you. I'm talking the... Legalese documents that go with it, the 30, 40 pages legalese documents. No. No. You at the back? The imperial gentleman? Even the whole 40 pages. So when you sign up to a. To, you've got a PlayStation. I don't know if you have a. You're from Imperial, you'll probably have a PlayStation. And, <laughs> And, and every time it upgrades, it takes you through those 12 pages that you have to click on to go through. You read every one of them. One of the things you can do is, if they're missing electronic, you keep a copy of the previous one, you can then do a dip and you can see what's And you do that every time? Yeah, I'm going to Well, listen, well, look, there's one person in this room. I don't do it. 
I don't do it. I read the product terms. I'm not going to read the legalese. It's too much waste of my time. Maybe if it were a mortgage, perhaps. But it's too much waste of my time for an upgrade on my PlayStation or for even, even for a credit card, frankly. You know, I do read it as part of my profession, but I don't read it as a consumer. And I think that that's one of the problems that we've got. And I think we have to solve that, that legal issue. Now, I don't mind legal terms and conditions that are protecting you from, you know, giving us the underlying regularity of what you normally have to do to protect you. But I think if it affects the product and how, what it will charge you and the cost to the consumer, you have to tell me up front. And if you don't tell me up front, you shouldn't be allowed to do it. So, so you can, they, they, they can announce they're going to raise prices with inflation. What about, you know... No, they have to tell you. So they will say... Say, yeah, this is a fixed-term contract with an uprating by inflation but, next but March. If, if, and I don't mind that so much. Supposing they, give you, supposing they give you 500 free minutes a month, and then they chop that down to... Well, they, they just can't do that. That's your term and condition. They can't do that within contract. Interesting. They can't okay. do it within contract. So this is, this is another potential scandal in the brewing. Well, I think, one, I've, I think one. we sold it. And I, I, we did discuss doing a reclaim on this for past. And in the end, we looked at, we looked at the number of people affected and the amount of money. Yeah. And, and it was relatively trivial yes. and just decided that particular one wasn't worth it. Because, yeah. yeah. you know, you have to push it. There's a question in the back. And let, let's take those two. And I guess we might... There's one in the back... Hi, Martin. We know each other. We're media group presidents together. Um, let me ask the Carolina Hearn question. What was it first attracted you to £87 million from moneysupermarket.com? And, and has it changed, your, changed the way you operate? Uh, the, what first attracted me to... Uh, it wasn't the £87 million, John, and no one ever believes this. They don't believe it. Uh, look, let's, let's be candid. I was a wealthy man anyway. Right. I had I was earning a lot of money. I owned the website. I didn't you know, it wasn't the case of they suddenly bought this asset that wasn't profitable. I owned an asset that was frankly worth quite a lot more than 87 million pounds. I sold it with an editorial contract. Uh, a unique editorial contract that legally binds it to act in the consumer's interest first, ahead of any financial considerations. That cost me a lot of money, I suspect. I didn't go to open market because I wanted to go to someone who I believed would obey that and believed in what it stood for. And I didn't have much negotiating because there weren't many people out there because I, I wouldn't sell to any big group. I wouldn't sell to an insurance company. I wouldn't do any of that. What really attracted me was I needed a life. And unfortunately, when you own a website like mine with 14 million users and every lawsuit is coming at you and you own it personally, it's tough. And I was, my television career was going to struggle. And I like my TV because I can reach more people. And I was simply had no capacity to manage it. So someone came along and they offered me a lot of money but probably not as much as it's actually worth. And certainly on their PE ratio now, it's worth about 200, 250 million pounds, uh, to be honest with you. Um, and they offered me a lot of money and they'd offered it me before and I decided it was time. And I got the editorial code. And the other thing people never talk about, just another unique that aren't done in corporate transactions. I have an earnout. You'll all know what an earnout is that lasts three years. My earnout has no financial consideration. I would not sign up to a financial earnout, which targeted me on making profit from the site. I want us to make profit. It is wonderful that my site makes profit, but not at the expense of doing one thing wrong, no matter how small. So my earnout is based on a number of factors. A metric of trust and recognition. Literally, we do a survey each month to how trusted the site is. We're the most trusted site in the country by a long way, and I have to keep it at that level. 
visit. Very happy with that. I want more people. I believe in my message. Of course, I want more people using it. Clicks. We want engagement, but not paid clicks. Clicks to products that are paid or unpaid. Doesn't matter. Uh, we wanted engagement. I think those are. Oh, uh, those are the those are the main metrics. So, wasn't the eighty-seven million pounds? I'm, listen, I'm very lucky. I love being a wealthy man. It makes life very easy. I get out of bed every day and do what I want to do, and not what they pay me to do. You cannot pay me to do anything anymore because I don't give a monkeys because I'm wealthy enough. You know full well if you've read it that I gave my large chunk to charity. I think I came fifth in the Sunday Times giving list last year of, of, of giving to charity and to, and to the Citizens Advice Bureau, which I did as a political point, a million pounds because it's a disgrace that someone like me has to help them out. It's a disgrace in a time of recession that their funding's cut when they give debt advice, that a charity like Citizens Advice is cut. And I did that. I gave them a million pounds to make it a political point. So what attracted me to it? Uh, Do you know what? The website's more important than me, and I don't know how long I can continue doing it, is the honest answer. I want to be around and associated with it. But in five years' time, I do not see myself being editor-in-chief. Probably editor-at-large. And as long as my face and name is on it, that editorial code has to be legally obeyed. And there are incredible penalties if it's broken. So um, it was my lifestyle, i.e. not the money, because it hasn't changed. I still drive my smart car. I haven't moved house. You know, my wife still shops at Primark. (laughs) Don't you? Yes, absolutely true. Um, None of that's changed. I have security for myself and my family. I have the ability to, my mental health and debt project, I've got millions of pounds earmarked to do that. What a, isn't that great? I can, what, I can do what the hell I want. I can throw money at solving mental health and debt. Isn't that, that, that is the great freedom and luxury for me. And, and the website's going to continue even if I go under a bus tomorrow. And it wouldn't have done before. And I genuinely believe, and I I hope you don't think I'm an arsehole for saying this, I genuinely believe that my website, not me, has been one of the greatest causes of social change in the UK in the last 10 years. And that needs protecting. It needs protecting legally, and it needs protecting from the key man risk. And that's what I did. Um, Yes. I Um, think we better make this the last question, because we need to give you time to reply fully. Um, I just wanted to ask you... um, whether you are likely to investigate legal expenses insurance, particularly in relation to the cuts in legal aid that are also um, hammering at the other end of the system, if you like, uh, both of which seem to be uh, placing a lot of people in difficulties. Well, interesting, legal, legal, legal extras insurance and legal expenses insurance on, on motor policies today was the FCA gave it a kicking because it's an add-on policy that has an auto tick box. We're not doing that much on it. It's one of the things on the list. And I'll be honest, the problem I have is the list is very, very, very big. Right? And there comes a certain time with something like that, which is outside our core remit of how much resource we can put into doing it. Because I don't have, I have a staff of about 60, 65. I don't have anyone who is particular, has a particular expertise on that subject. So I think my honest answer to you, while I'd love to say yes, is no. The day I'm a public service and funded with a campaign body by the government to do this type of stuff, I would love to do all and sundry. But I will be straight with you. Any, any new thing like that, the, the huge resource it takes. I mean, I have to say, potholes is one of my next big ones. <laughs> Pothole reclaiming. Is a big issue. But that, I prob- I'll be honest, I don't think we're going to do it. I can probably take one more because I feel that was a very short answer. Go on. <laughs> but I'll take- tell you what, if you, you can all have, if we give them all a question, 
Your question has to be no more than two sentences, and my reply will be no more than three. There we go. Okay. Two, let's take these two here together. Thanks very much. I'll try and keep it very, very brief. As, as a lobbyist myself, but for, in, a, in a different industry, um, I'm really interested in the fact that you, got, you and your uh, website and business partner had some incredible achievements. But over time... What are you doing to try and make those achievements a lot more systemic? And I'm thinking in particular, how are you working with the individual political parties? We've got a general election coming up in order to make sure that there's the adequate political support and buy-in with the major parties to bring about some of the systemic changes that we obviously need so that we're not reliant on people like yourself or individual campaigners, that we're we're getting a much more of a systemic uh, change to some of these consumer-related issues. I hope that makes sense. There's one just, just there, yeah. Um, Martin, how long do you think it'll be uh, before we complete the cycle of uh, us misunderstanding the proposition, if you stay with the company, they'll reward you, to learning from you that what we've really got to do is move our business all the time because they really want new customers and offer a better deal, to moving back to a situation where they say, God, we don't want everybody chopping and changing all the time. We'll reward you for staying with us. Uh, To answer the first question, we are growing our engagement in lobbying and policy, and certainly I see part of my long-term future as policy, personally. Um, But we're primarily for the consumer, and I don't believe your question makes sense, if you forgive me, in terms of when will we not need people like me because we'll have systemic change. Well, that, we, we will fix issues, but the issues will always lag people like me in different areas because those issues have to be isolated. So I you know, give a lot of time to select committee evidence. I go in and meet politicians of all parties. I'm always happy to support politicians of all parties. I say all. I mean the three. I, I'll be straight with you. I tend to meet Tories, Labour and Lib Dems, and I make no differentiation between them. Uh, and I don't let my personal politics ever engage in that. So I do that type of thing. But... The the answer is there are lots of ways to lobby. You can lobby behind a closed door and you can lobby on television. And I try and do both. And I have too long. But I basically they always know if I take Wendy with me, Wendy's my campaigns officer. Wendy means we're doing back end lobbying. Anything you say is in private and we'll try and help you sort it out. If I take Guy with me, who's my web editor, that means you're on the record and I'm here as a journalist. So I wear two hats. And when I go into meetings with politicians, I always tell them which hat I'm wearing. Um, to the gentleman here, inshallah. <laughs> Never. Never. Um, the biggest contributor to profits in financial services and in any regular contract business is apathy. And I don't see it changing. Apathy and ignorance. I don't see that changing. Which means the, the customer who wants his business to be fought for and switches will generally win unless it's a company who has a specific proposition of longevity, which we're seeing a few, but only on trivial products. So generally, I don't see it ever really happening. Let me wind this up to leave room for the drinks reception at the back. Let me thank you all very much for coming. Above all, Martin, it's been wonderful to see you again. A huge pleasure on behalf of all of us. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.